Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to be talking about GMOs, or genetically modified organisms. Are they beneficial or dangerous to global health? We have arguments on both sides. Are GMOs critical to sustainability or a danger to the environment? Should companies have the right to patent seeds? And can GMOs coexist with organic farming? We'll look for your responses to these questions. And we'll be talking with Jennifer Reeve, USU Associate Professor of Organic and Sustainable Agriculture. Welcome to the program. Hello. Um, and David Hole, USU Professor of Plant Breeding and Genetics, is with us as well. Thank you. Thank you. And on the phone, uh, Amelia Smith Reinhardt, University of Utah Associate Professor of Law. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Uh, this uh, debate uh, rages uh, not only uh, between the environmental movement and, and the corporate uh, uh, giants, but also among the green movement. We're going to uh, hear some uh, comments here in a couple of minutes from Mark Linus, author of The God Species, who I talked to recently. He has embraced uh, GMOs. Um, but, for example, Monsanto describes themselves as a sustainable agriculture company. If you go for another example at the Park City Farmer's Market uh, site, you'll see a lot of arguments against GMOs. Uh, Before we jump into this uh, debate and uh, seek some answers on GMOs, let's begin with some comments from Mark Linus. Uh, You know him as author of several uh, books on uh, climate change and most recently uh, author of The God Species. Uh, He most famously has embraced nuclear power. And that, of course, is controversial in the green community. We had a whole couple, two or three programs on that. Uh, Here are his comments on GMOs. If I think back to what I found scary about about this idea was was the idea that we're mixing DNA between different species and that somehow gave humans too much power. There was also the issue of patenting of, of, of seeds and about corporations and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, with the with the with the passing of time, I've actually realized that. Uh, and as I've worked closer with scientists and on climate change and other things, and I've got more um, more involved with the scientific community on some of these issues, um, that actually GMOs have have a potentially important role to play in the future because we can increase food production, and that's the real challenge to do that without increasing land and without in- increasing chopping down more rainforests and stuff. So there's all sorts of things that we can do with this very useful technology of of, of, of um, recombinant DNA. Uh, which can, I think, potentially be very helpful for humanity. So, again, you see this is necessary. We, we won't be able to sustain uh, the, the planet without uh, GMOs? Um, I would, that, that would be a bit simplistic to say that. It's not, it's not like nuclear in quite the same way. Um, but it's, a, it's an important part of the toolkit that biologists can have in terms of developing new types of crops. So, you know, in this part of the world, a big challenge is water supplies, of course. Um, there are new drought-tolerant corn and other types of crops being developed by, by scientists around the world. Um, if we can't use those, then we need to use more water for irrigation um, uh, in order to keep increasing yields. And if we do that, then we're going to run out of water and there won't be any water, <laughs> enough water for cities. You know, the Colorado River is going to carry on drying up. Uh, we're going to end up exploiting the aquifers and what happens when that water runs out. So, you know, it, it's, it's important to, to, to have that as an option. Um, and, and through conventional breeding, it would be pretty difficult to get to the drought-tolerant crops that we're looking for within the time we've got available. This idea of swapping around DNA, that, that does hit us at a pretty primal level, doesn't it? It's kind, yeah. of, a, kind of a punch to the gut. You, you, you've come around to, to not be worried well, about that. Well, it's that visceral reaction. And I think when I was worried about it, it was because I didn't know very much about it. Um, and the more I've, I've come to understand about molecular biology, the more <laughs> it's actually really just fascinating how genes work. Um, and I think uh, people don't, I mean, obviously at the most simplistic level, people don't like genes and people don't want to eat genes and they don't realize that all, all living material contains, contains genetic material. Once you get over that, people don't, people don't realize that the, the, the genetic code is the same amongst all living things. And so there's nothing fishy about fish DNA and strawberry about strawberry DNA. They're just DNA and they're just a, a coding system, basically. And so if you could take a genetic uh, set of instructions from one species and put it into another, it can then express... If that gene is expressed, it can then have the same trait and take it across the species barrier. Now, you can, if you, if you look at how this is done in, in conventional breeding, uh, mostly it's done through mutations uh, or, or through or through crossbreeding where you've already got the trait in, in, a, in a sexually compatible um, plant or animal or whatever. But, you know, if, you, if you're hoping for mutations, you know, it's actually a much more random process. So it's, uh, what I like about GMOs actually is it's very precise. Uh, and, and for that reason, it's probably safer than, than conventional breeding. That's from my recent conversation with Mark Linus, author of The God Species. It kind of sets up several of the issues uh, 
this could be a boon to uh, agriculture production, increased food production. Uh, not scary, proven uh, safe. Uh, I wonder, uh, starting with uh, David Hole, maybe you could give us the uh, sort of the GMOs for dummies, uh, uh, you know, thumbnail sketch. What what exactly are we talking about? GMOs, genetically modified organisms. Well, the the normal definition that most people think about when we're talking about GMOs is where we use molecular tools to take a gene from one species and insert it into the genome of another species so that it's expressed. Certainly we do genetic manipulation and genetic modification all the time, but when we talk about GMO or in some countries GE for genetically engineered, we're really talking about these molecular tools. And as I mentioned to to Mark Linus, uh, this sort of hits a lot of us on a kind of a gut level. Uh, some of us are kind of uneasy with this. I suppose, is this just an extension of, uh, you know, plant breeding that has, has been done for, for decades and centuries? Well, I think there's no question that there's been lots of manipulations that have been to crops, uh, many of them natural, from the origin and domestication of wheat, rice, and corn, uh, mutation breeding that happened in the 1950s and 60s and con- continues today. And this is an extension of that. It's, a, it's another tool to use. What is, uh, I'll turn to either Professor Ola or Professor Reeve, uh, what is the consensus among scientists? Is this safe? Do we, do we need to worry about this, eating these crops? I think the general consensus is that it's, it is safe. After We've been um, doing this now for 30 years, and uh, as far as I know, at least, there's no uh, creditable uh, research that actually proves it's unsafe mm-hmm. to eat. Um, but at the same time, focusing on that debate, sometimes we lose attention to some of the the larger issues and the indirect consequences of focusing so much of our research efforts on this one tool. So you're saying that maybe the, uh, the downside here is not so much the genetically modified crops themselves. It's just that we're focusing so much research attention to this particular part of the, uh, the puzzle. Yes, I would argue that. Um, I think if we... If we take the corn-soybean rotation, for example, which is a very commonly used rotation, particularly in the Midwest, it's very simplistic. Uh, We have two warm-season row crops, which would be very susceptible to weed pressure in that system. And so now we have genetically engineered uh, Roundup resistance in both these crops, which uh, basically enables farmers to take weed management for granted, makes... It, it enables a very s- simple cropping system. It's just from rotation. Ju- right. Uh, it, we, we no longer need to focus on rotation because we now have these Roundup resistance in the crops so that we can, you know, we can spray the crops without killing the crops and mm. we kill the weeds. Well, I'll follow up with that. That's uh, interesting. Uh, the, the number, by the way, to call is 1-800-826-1495. Genetically modified organisms, uh, biotech crops is what we're talking about. Is it safe? Uh, by the way, if you go to, uh, I've, I've been uh, citing the Park City Farmers uh, Market uh, website, parkcityfarmersmarket.com, uh, but there are many other areas. Uh, you go to GMO Free Utah and, and other sites, and you see video after video of uh, people who are, are talking about how, you know, they, they're believing at least that uh, ingesting genetically modified crops has caused problems for them, you know, illnesses, diseases. Again, uh, Professor Hole, uh, you, consensus is it's, this is safe? Yeah. In fact, there have been some reports indicating that it might even be safer. BT corn, for instance, because it incorporates genes from Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a, a bacterial natural protectant that can be sprayed even on organic crops. Uh, some of these genes are incorporated into the corn. The corn grows itself. Uh, expressing these genes keeps the worms from damaging the grain. That damage in storage frequently can lead to infect infestations of uh, a fungus that causes aflatoxin and fumonisin, both very potent mycotoxins. So there have been studies showing that there are actually lower amounts of these mycotoxins in uh, BT corn because it didn't have the damage to the kernels from the from the pests. Mm. Let me bring in uh, Professor uh, Amelia Smith Reinhardt, University of Utah Associate Professor of Law. Um, I, 
I think if you talk to people who are against uh, genetically modified organisms, of course they cite uh, safety concerns, but uh, a big sticking point sticks in their craw is this uh, idea of intellectual property. And uh, seeds are the, the very essence of life, and uh, should you be able to patent seeds? I, I think this is pretty well settled in law, isn't it, the, this idea of, of patenting seeds? Um, fairly well settled, I would say. Um, and we, so we provide protection over um, genetically modified sequences, plants that have them, um, and we do it in two different ways, one through um, what we call a plant variety protection uh, certificate, which protects varieties and characteristics and um, uh, phenotypes, essentially. And then we also protect them using utility patents, which is our ordinary patenting system, which provides um, a little bit stronger rights than you would get under the plant certificates. Um, and this has been going on um, Beginning generally in 1980 or so, we recognize that living organisms can receive patent protection if they are invented by man, um, and by that we mean sort of genetically modified foods in general, um, but we also protect um, other, other things that are living, um, and there's a, a case going up before the Supreme Court right now involving human DNA, the Myriad case. Um, but seeds generally we accept as protected, um, and that does trouble folks. Um, and, I, and I think for a couple of reasons. Um, one is uh, the point that Jennifer brought up earlier about unintended consequences of this type of intellectual property protection, um, and that is consolidation of seed companies and these large, giant biotechnology companies um, sort of merging uh, within the industry, um, a focus only on cash crops and focusing on traits that do things like resist um, Roundup rather than focusing on other types of traits that may not be um, economically as profitable. Um, and so I think that that is problematic to some folks. Um, and then in the other context, just this control of the seed itself um, and its products. So as you sell the seed out into commerce and farmers buy it and plant it and raise other seeds that may uh, be used for saving for future crops, all of that is regulated by the company who sells the technology that's protected by the patent. Um, and it's controlled by contract and um, using parts of patent law, um, sort of threatening infringement suits and the like. And that troubles folks. Um, for obvious reasons, right? Um, and so sort of reducing farmers' rights in that context, I think, troubles people, um, and it gives us this lack of access um, that I think is worrisome at some levels. We're going to continue this discussion on genetically modified organisms. Uh, is this a boon to uh, global health? Some people argue, for example, golden rice. We'll get into talking about that. Uh, that's a real boon to, uh, to global health. Others say, no, this is a danger and should not be embraced. Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation with your question or comment. UPRAxis at gmail.com. UPRAxis at gmail.com. Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona, is in already with a couple of questions. Thanks for those, Steve. We'll uh, get to those following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Connections program featuring The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind by William Kimkwamba and Brian Mueller. The Common Literature Experience Convocation with William Kimkwamba is August 24th at 9.30 a.m. Details at usu.edu slash connections slash literature experience and area-info.net, providing a social media outlet for personalized press releases, business news, business events, and opinions. Information at area-info.net. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Genetically modified organisms, GMOs, the subject, obviously, of the program today. You're welcome to join us. If you have a question or comment, here's how you join us. Uh, email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. You'll see a post there on GMOs, and uh, Margaret Harper and Sharissa Aldrich have liked that post. You can join us as well, upraxis at gmail.com and Utah Public Radio Facebook page. 
Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Genetically modified organisms, uh, genetically modified crops, biotech crops. Is this a boon to uh, world health? Uh, we could ramp up agriculture perhaps by these means, or is it a danger? Some people are saying that genetically modified crops are dangerous, although that we've heard earlier in the program, scientific consensus is that, uh, that it's safe. Uh, should companies have the right to patent seeds? We've just been hearing from uh, Professor Amelia Smith-Reinhardt from University of Utah uh, some of the objections people have to this, although it seems to be pretty settled in law. And uh, can GMOs coexist with organic farming? It's a question we're throwing out to you. Jennifer Reeve is saying that's perhaps not quite the question. Uh, maybe it, we're directing our energies in a uh, direction that we shouldn't be with genetically modified crops. And there are some solutions that are very simple that could be spread worldwide. Uh, we invite you to uh, weigh in on this topic, answer these questions. Uh, where do you stand on this? Upraxis at gmail.com. Let's go to uh, Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. His email he says, I'm glad you have a law professor on the panel this morning, so this will be coming to you, Professor Reinhardt. Uh, perhaps she can say something about the Monsanto Protection Act, which was recently signed into law. He gives a, uh, he gives a link, and apparently the Monsanto Protection Act is a name given by the opponents to the farmer assurance provision. I wonder, Professor Reinhardt, if you're familiar with this. Um, only sort of um, at a very high level. Um, you know, I, I think that that provision... Um, does some protection for Monsanto in terms of um, EPA and USDA um, sort of regulation, so not in the patent space, uh, but in the regulation space. Um, and uh, that's about um, as much as I know about it. Um, you know, I, I think that there um, is a larger conversation that could be had about how we regulate these genetically modified foods, sort of taking, you know, all of the evidence that um, David and Jennifer have mentioned about it being safe, uh, but still sort of thinking through how we might have regulatory mechanisms that sort of ensure um, that our consumers are comfortable with it being on the shelves. Um, and that particular piece of legislation goes toward Monsanto's liability um, for um, certain regulatory mechanisms, right, getting um, approval from the USDA and the EPA for putting this stuff out there. Um, uh, let me turn to uh, David Hole. Uh, what's your understanding of this, this act? Well, I think, the, I think the initial, or at least the intention of the act, is to protect farmers that have planted uh, a GMO crop like alfalfa, which may last in a field for 15 years. There was a Roundup-ready alfalfa. It was approved by EPA, uh, but a judge then ruled that the EPA had not uh, considered enough environmental impact. So it became essentially uh, unregulated, but farmers had already planted it. They already had now fields of alfalfa, and they couldn't legally sell uh, the hay, or they couldn't sell seed from that while the process continued. Eventually, within about another year, the additional studies were done and it was reapproved. But in the meantime, it, it could potentially have ruined farmers. I think this act allows them to continue to sell those products. Hmm. And uh, Professor Hull, uh, you were telling me before we went on the air, there's a, uh, I hadn't been aware of this, there's a, uh, a GMO case involving Monsanto before the Supreme Court at this point. Uh, I'll ask Professor Reinhardt as well about this, but. Well, I think it involves uh, whether or not patents extend to uh, uh, protect items that can reproduce themselves. And unlike patenting a doorknob, uh, when you patent something that can reproduce itself, how far do your patent protections go? If a farmer goes and buys seed from a, uh, a, a mill or a, a regular grain elevator uh, with the with the expected intention of, of uh, feeding it to, uh, to animals but then plants it, uh, is that a violation of the patent? And so those arguments have been heard, but no decision has been made yet. Professor Reinhardt, uh, are you familiar with this case? Uh, yes. And what what would be the implications either way? The, the Supreme Court will rule, I assume, and uh, we'll, get, we'll get a ruling in June or sometime during the summer. Right. Um, the, so um, just to kind of reiterate what Dave was mentioning, um, this case really goes toward um, the reach that the patent owner has over um, downstream uses of sold patented goods. Um, so if I sell a patented machine um, to someone, that person um, will not be liable for violating my patent rights by you know, using that machine or selling it somewhere else. Um, but what we don't protect within that 
patent exhaustion um, doctrine is a making, a remaking of the invention, which would still violate an infringement. And so any of these technologies that self-replicate, that remake themselves, um, would infringe the patent um, unless the patent owner gives you the right to do so. And um, seed sellers or the um, owners of this patent technology don't provide to farmers the right to remake the invention, except within the confines of the license, which is to plant one generation um, and then sell the seeds or the um, fruit of that generation um, to the grain elevator or to a mill or to put it back into commerce as feed or food. Um, and so the implications of this case um, are pretty large for um, seed as a commodity um, in the sense that if Monsanto loses um, and farmers get the right to um, future generations of seeds, um, it will cut into um, the value of that protection because this, the seeds will be able to self-replicate in the future and Monsanto will not be able, or companies that own them will not be able to um, benefit from those remakings of the invention. Um, if farmers lose, then we sort of lose that ability to walk up to the grain elevator and buy seeds and knowing that they may have a high percentage of Roundup resistance or some other sort of genetic trait um, and plant them without paying a royalty back to um, the seed company. Hmm. I, wonder, uh, I wonder if you could compare and contrast the, this case uh, with the Mary Genetics case. It seemed, and first of all, uh, Professor Hall, you were telling me before we went to the air, you have a colleague who I think attended arguments. And it, in, in their opinion, it looked like, you know, this is all reading tea leaves, and it's, it's quite a sport in and of itself, uh, seeing what, the way justices are leaning. But it, it seemed like from the questioning, the justices were sort of leaning in favor of Monsanto in this. Yeah, I think in the, uh, in the patent suit uh, regarding Monsanto's uh, capability of, of controlling their patents a little deeper than, than uh, of course, obviously the farmers thought they ought to be able to. Uh, his his take anyway was that the court uh, questioning seemed to favor Monsanto, but of course you know you have to always wait for the ruling to come down. Right. And, and the reason I bring that in is because it looks like this again this is tea leaf reading, but it, it seemed like from the question justices were leaning against Mary Genetics case, and I well, of course there are a lot of differences between the cases I'm sure, but uh, it, it just seems like the objection that people have is uh, to you know how can we patent life <laughs> life itself, mm -hmm. and maybe it just hits a little closer to home when it's human genes. I don't know. I you know I think that's a large part of it. I think the legal questions in the cases sort of, you know, allow the justices to sort of compartmentalize and think about the isolated DNA that's at issue in Myriad as a question of patent eligibility, you know, should this be patented at all? Um, and in the Monsanto case, you know, because it seeds, because it is something that is more clearly man-made, right, we're injecting, you know, a different species DNA or some different sort of bacteria DNA into um, the crop DNA, um, that seems more patent eligible, but the question in the Monsanto case goes back to the rights that the patent owner has um, to um, restrict others from using or selling or in, the, in this particular case from making the invention. Um, and so how the legal question is presented, I think, you know, sets up that um, choice, right? I might side for Monsanto in this particular case because of the use issues, but I might side for Myriad in the eligibility issues. Mm. If you just joined us, we're talking about genetically modified organisms. Uh, some say this is, is going to be necessary to uh, feed a, a exploding population and to get the nutrition that we need. Others say, though, this is a danger to global health. Are GMOs critical to sustainability or a danger to the environment? Should companies have the right to patent seeds? And can GMOs coexist with organic farming? We're throwing those questions out to you. Your response to the questions at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We have with us uh, on the phone Amelia Smith-Reinhardt, University of Utah Associate Professor of Law. Uh, Jennifer Reeve is in studio with us, USU Associate Professor of Organic and Sustainable Agriculture. David Hole, USU Professor of Plant Breeding and Genetics. Uh, by the way, um, Professor Hole wanted me to mention an upcoming event in September sponsored by the Department of uh, 
Plant, Soils, and Climate is what it's uh, named now, I think, at Utah State University. Uh, Ricardo Salvador from Union of Concerned Scientists coming in to give a, of a talk. Here's another uh, email from Steve in uh, Beaver Dam, Arizona. I'll direct this to uh, Jennifer Reed first. Uh, many scientists and farmers worry about genetic pollution from GMO crops, escaping into the wild, or infecting other agricultural products. Is this a concern to your guests? Well, um, it depends whether the, there is a neighboring crop that's compatible with that, with that pollen. So, for example, in the case of organic corn, if your neighbor's growing GMO um, corn, either Roundup Ready or BT corn, and you want to grow organic corn, yes, there's a potential for cross-pollination. Now, I don't know that that's really a problem unless you intend to uh, produce a seed crop for sale. Uh, in which case, you know, you're going to have to properly isolate your crops. And so some of these cases where some counties have been trying to uh, declare themselves GMO-free is often argued on that basis. We have a lot of organic seed crops produced in this area. Uh, any potential for cross-contamination with those would ruin our business. Mm. This is a big deal, isn't it? If, if, if you're going to call yourself organic, there are some legal requirements and then there are some expectations that consumers would have and suspicion would be raised, especially among that particular target um, consumer base, wouldn't it? If, if you have GMOs around. Yes, I, I think definitely so. Uh, the Organic National Program does uh, certify Anything organically grown is GMO-free. So if you are concerned as a consumer, you can purchase organic products and be assured that they are GMO-free. Now, the definition of GMO-free does you know, allow for some minimal contamination. I think it's about 1%. Um, but nevertheless, you know, as a grower, you have to ensure through adequate barriers or boundaries, uh, buffer zones, and documentation that your crop is indeed um, GMO-free. Mm. David Hull, uh, your response to this question, uh, genetic pollution, uh, is this a concern? Well, it's certainly a, a, a possibility because uh, pollen moves. And I think probably the most uh, analogous uh, sort of thing to look at would be pesticide drift. When you apply pesticides to one field, uh, it can drift on to another field. Uh, at least up till now, we've had no pesticide residue testing of organic uh, produce. So you may not have had pesticides applied in an organic field, but there's no assurance, in fact, that they are pesticide-free. Now, that may change in 2013 uh, under the organic standards. Uh, in the past, of course, the law has said that if your pesticide drifts and damages another crop, then you are responsible. But that, so far, we haven't seen that case law with uh, things like pollen. Uh, nor, for example, in, you know, if a farmer's weed seed blows onto your field, you know, are they responsible for, for that? Mm. Let me follow up with uh, Amelia Smith-Reinhardt. Uh, and I was just thinking about that before uh, Professor brought it up. Uh, you know, if you have a, uh, if you, your field is next to a Monsanto field, um, you know, can, can you be liable? Can, you, can Monsanto come after me and if, if their product through pollen drifts over to my farm? Yes. Um, so we have a strict liability standard um, for patent infringement. So um, as long as there is some infringement of the patent, um, you would be liable. And there's a Canadian case involving a guy named Percy Schmeiser, um, sort of involving similar facts to that, um, and he was liable for patent infringement. But, you know, I'm not a farmer, but that just seems totally unfair. I, I'm, you know, the <laughs> maybe the Monsanto guy came in and planted his crop later than I did. And I think organic farmers are upset about exactly that precise thing because it's up to the organic farmer to protect themselves, to create the adequate buffer zones on their land. Right. And, and so and that's land that you can't plant. Then. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I, I guess, the uh, Professor Reinhardt, the, the, the case law is pretty settled on that. You, if, if I'm the non-Monsanto guy, I've got to protect myself. Right. Um, and, you know, there, there has been a push. A, a group of organic farmers um, has brought a case trying to challenge the validity of these patents on the same grounds. Um, that the ACLU and the Public Patent Foundation are challenging the Myriad patents. Um, so from, a, from a policy perspective, this is not the kind of stuff we should be patenting, right? It's not patent eligible. Um, and, 
their case was dismissed at the district court level um, because they could not show that they had infringed the patent yet. Um, and, and they were expressing concerns or fear um, that through wind or animals or some other way, um, the seeds would in fact make their way to their land um, and would like to get into court earlier to challenge those patents. Um, that's being appealed to the federal circuit, um, the, the Court of Appeals for Patent Cases. Um, and so we'll see if they'll continue to, to go down that path of challenging the patents. Um, but until they can show a small amount of infringement, they won't be able to stay in court. This is why, I suppose, factors like this, that uh, there's such a visceral reaction to those Monsanto or other signs in the fields. Right. Uh, you, know, you, do, you do get a very visceral reaction. On the other side, maybe uh, we could treat the argument for patenting sure. of, of intellectual property. I, I suppose, just like drug companies, uh, Monsanto, for example, would say that uh, the intellectual property rights, the patent rights, are a driver for, uh, for research. Right. So the, the point of our patent system is to promote progress by incentivizing invention and public disclosure of those inventions by filing patents. Um, and I think you could make the same arguments that pharmaceutical companies make, um, that they would not put so many dollars into research and development without the ability to protect um, their inventions in the patent system. Um, and I think that the companies, um, both small and large, have been very successful um, because they've obtained patent protection um, and to the extent that we've recognized that this type of stuff is protectable, um, we think that this sort of protection incentivizes biotechnology industries um, and, and contributes to what we were talking about earlier and providing um, incentives to come up with new and innovative traits, um, to come up with ways to increase yield, um, to increase um, the production of food worldwide given some of our restraints. Um, I think that those are very powerful arguments. Professor Hall, you were saying that, you're pointing out, I hadn't thought about this, patents do expire, and so perhaps these benefits go beyond the companies which institute these patents in 20 or 30 years. Right, so the Roundup Ready patents on soybeans, uh, I think the last one will expire next year, and so that uh, those patents, those genes are now in the public domain and can be used by uh, anybody. And so I think the, I mean, this is very expensive research to do. And I think there's no question that uh, ultimately all of this material ends up uh, in the public domain, benefiting public breeders as well as private breeders. Let's go to our uh, caller, Bettina, in uh, Springdale. Bettina, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Oh, thank you. This is, I think, one of the most important subjects in our modern times. I mean, it's similar to the... Um, idea of the nuclear tests and how they change the world, and I think this is going to change the world in that same powerful way. Um, there was a documentary I can recommend called The World According to Monsanto, and uh, it's excellent. And my one question is, um, I believe in Europe, the Europeans have some really strict um, import um, prohibitions against GMOs, and they've passed a lot of laws against GMOs. And um, this uh, documentary, The World According to Monsanto, does uh, document a lot of health issues that are tracked back to GMOs. And so that's just all that I had to say, and I'd like to listen to their comments. Okay, Bettina, Thanks. before before you go, Bettina, we'll have we'll direct your your question to our panel. I'm just wondering to to, to get a go a little deeper. You say this is as important; it will have a as big an impact on the world as the nuclear test. I wonder if you can just uh, just give us a little more on, on that. Why why do you think that's so? Well, one, the dollar bull uh, thing of making everything dollar bull in nature and. You know, the one argument is uh, we have all these people that we have to feed in the world. And so they justify um, kind of taking a corporate approach to having everything dollar bill that we have to buy. So I think it's more about making money than it is about feeding people. Mm, interesting. And um, our pharmaceutical companies the same way, trying to patent the uh, healing plants and uh, medicinal plants out of the Amazon. 
taking it away so that someone can have the opportunity to just go in and walk in nature and it might come to the point where you can't touch anything. Interesting, yeah. I just wanted to follow up. Or belongs to somebody. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Patina. GMOs, genetically modified organisms, uh, is this a boon to world health or is it a danger? Uh, Should companies have the right to uh, patent uh, seeds? Can GMOs coexist with organic farming? Your response is at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Let me get a response to Patina's specific question uh, first from Amelia Smith Reinhardt. She pointed out there is a big culture difference, at least between uh, America and uh, Europe. Europe is quite skeptical about GMOs, and the, uh, she mentioned there, there are some, uh, some import laws and, and such. Yes. Um, um, the, the U.S. hasn't really taken that approach, um, and as a result, we've ended up with um, much less regulation um, than the European folks have. Um, a lot of that is not driven by intellectual property protection, but more driven by health and safety concerns. Um, as we sort of mentioned earlier, I think the U.S. is not as concerned about the health and safety um, because it has put into place um, questioning through the FDA, the EPA, and the USDA, and provided it sort of meets all of those recommendations. We are allow we allow. Um, farmers to plant it, and we allow it to be put into food. Um, And, you know, I think it's easier for um, the European Union to sort of control those countries from a regulatory um, standpoint um, based on things like uh, morality or other questions, um, skepticism, um, in a way that we're more driven here in the U.S., I think, by economics and proven safety um, or, you know, lack of, you know, no evidence of um, lack of safety or lack of a better way of phrasing it. Um, And and so provided we have those regulatory mechanisms in place here, we think it's safe to sell um, and Europe doesn't. Um, and, And part of that may be a cultural difference um, that, that is happening between our uh, regulatory systems. Let's go to our next caller, uh, Brian in Hyde Park. Uh, glad you called, Brian. Go ahead with your question or comments. Yeah, my main concern with with this whole issue, uh, especially when I uh, listen to farmers who are not able to reuse the seed that they grow, even though that they're not uh, using genetically modified seed, because the the corn, for instance, for Roundup Ready, it moves through the genes and gets into the the crops of the neighboring farmer, and so now he's stuck becoming uh, using and having to buy from from Monsanto t- to get seed. I I just the whole idea of of forcing uh, a neighboring farmer to to do something like that just makes absolutely no sense to me. And then and on top of that, since I'm a a monarch butterfly. Uh, uh, Appreciator, uh, what about what happens when you have uh, butterflies that are feeding on milkweed, for instance, that happen to be along the periphery of the of the farmer's field? Well, that that's going to kill. I mean, it, it's not just targeted; it it moves out into the environment. Uh, thank you for those questions, Brian. We'll we'll get a response. Uh, I don't know who wants to respond to the first uh, mm-hmm. question. This is sort of you know this this idea idea of injustice. Um, you know, it's, it's the Borg. Resistance is futile. It's uh, you know, right. seeds are mm-hmm. seeds are coming over, over your over your fence or your barrier, and it, it seems like uh, the onus ought to be on the Monsanto guy. Well, yeah. that's uh, we've set up a, a patent system that recognizes strict liability, um, and we think that that's the best way um, to incentivize folks to make those inventions. We think that's the best way to provide value. Um, and we think that, you know, as we mentioned earlier, by forcing you to make that public disclosure to get your patent, by having other people have access to that, that knowledge, and then having your patent expire, we think um, that that provides the sorts of incentives that we think we want for research and development. Um, and part of that price is a strict liability standard. Um, and it does seem unfair to people who are um, committing what we call de minimis infringement. Um, And I have to say that most companies, 
um, with patent protection don't really pursue de minimis infringement um, because it's not really um, a profitable model for them. It doesn't really um, get competitors out of the market. Um, and, and Monsanto, you know, to their credit, has, has not particularly pursued just a handful of um, seeds that have come over or, you know, a, a little patch. Um, and, and they profess not to have that kind of mindset that they're only going to pursue large-scale infringers. And, you know, whether we want to take corporations at their word or not, um, you know, it, it is a part of the value of the patent system. And as long as we recognize that these things are protected by intellectual property rights, that's part of the price. Um, and it's up to the individual companies to police um, the infringement that they, that they recognize of their own rights. And it's up to us as people in society to not infringe those patents if we don't want to be subject to that liability. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking, obviously, about genetically modified organisms. Should companies have the right to patent seeds? Can GMOs coexist with organic farming? Are GMOs beneficial or dangerous to global health? We're talking with Jennifer Reeve, USU Associate Professor of Organic and Sustainable Agriculture, David Hull, USU Professor of Plant Breeding Genetics, and uh, Amelia Smith-Reinhardt, University of Utah Associate Professor of Law. We're inviting your comments. The place to go is our email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or you can comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. And we do have a comment from Charles Ashurst. Charles says, Are we kidding ourselves in assuming that GMOs will save our inherently unsustainable, gigantic monoculture, fossil carbon input-intensive agriculture? Thanks for that comment, Charles. You can join your comments with Charles at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We have another 10 minutes left in the program. Hope to get your comment in as well, or you can comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We've got callers stacked up, so I'm going to ask our callers and our guests to be as brief as possible so we can fit everybody in. Uh, let me uh, just throw out to Brian's second question before we get to, we have uh, Randy, uh, Frank, and Tom on the line. We'll get to you as fast as possible. Uh, Brian had a second question about uh, monarch butterflies. Well, I Go think ahead. that, I mean, both our, our previous questions raised this issue of indirect consequences, both monarch butterflies or in the wider agroecosystem. And I, I really think that there's a concern that when we, when we focus on these um, uh, single enablers of a very simple cropping system, we could be potentially um, missing the boat on a whole other potential raft of solutions. Mm. Um, I have an example that I think is particularly dramatic. There was a, the paper published in the journal Plus One last fall by Matt Liebman's group in the University of Iowa. And they found just by increasing the rotation from the traditional corn soybean rotation to uh, a three or four year rotation, they could reduce inputs by 83 to 90%, reduce pesticides and fertilizer inputs by 83 to 90%. And that is huge. But that story didn't get that much attention, you know, and the same with the butterflies, you know, in, in the UK, I remember there was a report, a sort of safety assessment done of uh, genetically modified crops. And one of the key problems that they identified was actually when you have a much cleaner field with fewer weeds, there's all these indirect consequences on the birds, on the other beneficial insects that are feeding on those weeds. And you have a much poorer agroecosystem as a result. Mm. Let's go to our next caller, who is Randy in Logan. Randy, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, I, I do appreciate uh, very much you having this program. I'm sorry I came in late. Uh, I, 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 as one who makes his living mainly on uh, uh, with organic products, uh, I am especially impacted by uh, the whole industrialized agricultural thing where where essentially they, they run the politics, they run uh, our, our foreign policy and everything else. Uh, 
Um, it, it concerns me that, that niche marketers are often, and organic farmers are essentially niche marketers, unfortunately, uh, trying to, it, it's becoming more mainstream, but I've seen projects, for example, in Hawaii with specialty papaya where their entire industry was, specialty industry was ruined by, uh, the introduction of just field testing of, of, uh, genetically modified papaya, uh, to where 85% of the, the crop in Hawaii is contaminated. They've lost their, their Japanese market and a lot of their specialty markets because of it. Um, we have field testing that's been approved for for coffee, uh, genetically modified coffee crops, and it has implications worldwide for over 80 countries uh, if, if this becomes implemented. So even though coffee is self-pollinated, it also can be pollinated, cross-pollinated through the airways like other crops. So I, I am concerned that, that we are putting products out there without long-term studies and not uh, – and then the other concern is all the, the, the industry has, has made it. If you want to uh, differentiate yourself, uh, you have to uh, – uh, the onus is on people who want to uh, label their products as genetically uh, free rather than on the industry producing GMO products to label their products as having – as containing genetically modified elements. It just seems to me that it, it's all backwards. The small uh, independents are, are the ones who are having to do the labeling. Uh, the, the industry that is in trying to impose this product on the public has no responsibility whatsoever for, for uh, letting the consumer know that their product has been genetically modified. Again, it may be that these products are fine. The problem is, is that the studies are not bearing this out and long-term studies are, are remarkably absent in something that has such serious implications worldwide. Thanks, thanks, Randy. Appreciate the comment there. Uh, let's go next to uh, Frank calling us from Montana. Go ahead, Frank. I'm a home gardener, and on social media among home gardeners, there seems to be great fear that they are going to inadvertently purchase seed that is GMO. And I'm wondering, really, in the, the seed you buy from the seed catalogs or uh, the racks at the grocery store, um, is there anything to worry about in, in regards to vegetable seeds? Professor Hall, I wonder if direct this one to you. Yeah, I'd have to say probably not. Uh, you know, the, the seed that you buy, if it's genetically modified, there's a, a, a company that has a patent behind it, and they're, they're generally going to want to be sure that uh, you know about it and you're following their regulations on utilizing it. Uh, if, if it's, uh, you perhaps are talking about uh, kind of a, a inadvertent presence, the seed growers are quite uh, technologically advanced. And so I think there's very little chance of, of uh, buying a seed packet that has a, a adventitious presence of a, a genetically modified gene in it. Thank, thanks, Frank, for the call. Okay, thank you very much. And we'll go to Tom in Logan. Uh, Tom, welcome to the program. I appreciate uh, having the folks on this morning. I, I'm just thinking about the agricultural revolutions of the past. Uh, DDT comes to mind, uh, a, a, an experiment or a, a, a new technique of rice production in the Philippines, which was pesticide-based, uh, had great returns for about five years, and then all the pests became uh, resistant to the pesticides, and the rice production actually went down. And the same thing with greening of India, that we, we've trans or exported our, our farming techniques and uh, corporate based and um, with a lot of pesticides and uh, other things that go on and uh, you know I'm, I'm kind of aligning myself with Randy's comments that uh, I don't think especially when you're dealing with the genetics of five or ten year period they were talking about 30 years here earlier may not be enough and uh, we may be sticking ourselves on this deal mm-hmm. but I just want to make that comment and I thank you thank you Tom appreciate that we are uh, coming down to the end of the program we have a couple of emails from Chris, Chris Fenning, who uh, emailed us. Let's uh, just get these comments in. Uh, Chris says, the reason the biggest four or five food producers do not want to label their food is they know consumers will start to be concerned. If consumers choose to eat GMOs, that's their choice, but at least give consumers the labeling choice. The four biggest corporations threw billions against GMO labeling in California and almost lost the labeling battle against groups who raised only thousands. Why are the corporations so scared to label their foods? And then, uh, Chris, if I can get to this here, 
uh, in time here. Chris uh, gave us another email. To the best of my knowledge, Horizon and Stonyfield battled to let their cows eat GMO alfalfa while still being able to label their dairy products organic. I believe Whole Foods was also lobbying, uh, lobbying on their side as well. The more consumers give their dollars to huge food companies, Nestle, Kraft, etc., the more trust we give them. And in the end, they all wish, uh, all they wish to do is give their investors the biggest return in terms of dollars. That's what Chris says. Jennifer, you're shaking your head on that one. Well, in the National Organic Program states that uh, dairy cows must be fed, any organic animal must be fed organic feed. And so uh, GMOs are not allowed in the organic program. And so by definition, organic al- uh, alfalfa would be GMO-free. Um, so I, I don't know where that concern about Stonyfield comes from, but I, I don't see how that could possibly be the case other than maybe trace contamination issues, which, yeah, is a concern. We'll leave the discussion there. We're out of time. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Jennifer Reeve, USU Associate Professor of Organic and Sustainable Agriculture. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, David Hole, USU Professor of Plant Breeding and Genetics. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. And Amelia smith Reinhardt, University of Utah Associate Professor of Law. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll, I'm sure, just continue some of these discussions on sustainability and climate change in future programs. I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. And coming up tomorrow on the program, we uh, are going to answer your retirement and retirement planning questions. We've been talking here on staff uh, with the stock market sort of up and down. It's, it's uh, better to be in the stock market. Most of us are with mutual funds and, and the like. Uh, unavoidable these days. Um, but uh, where should we put our retirement money? If you're on the young side, of course, uh, sock that money away. It uh, really leverages out, but uh, perhaps you've left it a little bit late. What do you do then? Uh, some retirement planning advice, your questions and answers, your comments. We'll have Professor Mike Lyons from the Political Science Department to talk about public policy and how that's going to affect your retirement. And Jean Laun, USU professor, family consumer and uh, human development. Uh, she'll be answering uh, practical questions. Retirement and retirement planning tomorrow on Access Utah. Hope you join us. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour. We'll explore Canada, which is a magnet for world music artists from around the globe. You can dance to a hot Latin band, enjoy the delicate beauty of love songs from India, or sway to the rhythms of calypso and reggae. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Music in Canada, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Fridays at 10 p.m. on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. Did you know that positive coping strategies can help slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease and dementia? So, if you are a caregiver, take care of yourself Count your blessings and ask for help when you need it. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you.